time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into hour two of our three-hour tour. I'm really excited to uh, have joining me the author of a book called Multiverse. It is a dystopian political thriller that searches for a balance of science and religion's role in the fight for power. His name is Robert Mercer Narn. And uh, he, he goes by a couple of different titles. We're going to find out about that in the book and much, much more with uh, Dr. and or Lord Robert Mercer Nairn. Um, Robert, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Nice to, nice to speak to you. Now, I was reading up on you a little bit, and, and I came across uh, you were referred to as doctor, but also as uh, Lord Robert Mercer Narn. Is uh, Lord a title that comes by birth, or is that something that's conferred on you? Oh, no, it's, it's an excellent, excellent title. It comes entirely by birth, so I have, I have no uh, justification for it other than being <laughs> born, which is very satisfactory. <laughs> Um, but, uh, the book, Multiverse, um, is, when I first saw that phrase, Robert, forgive me, I thought of Spider-Man. Um. You did? (laughs) I, I did. Well, I did because there's a, a a Spider-Man, one of the episodes is a multiverse, uh, place where he exists in in multiple universes um and your use of the word is not that much different in it and it really kind of uh, brings string theory into the conversation well it does i mean i don't know how familiar people are with string theory probably not very many people but it is a fascinating idea Uh, essentially what the what the theory suggests is that the character of a universe, uh, that's the force of gravity, electromagnetic force, the mass of particles, etc., are determined by a tiny vibrating filament of energy, which the pattern 
of vibration determining the nature of the set. So in other words, if you change the pattern of the vibration, you get a different set and a different universe, hence the word multiverse. Now, in my book, what I've tried to do is I've suggested that the moral tone of a people, the things that we sort of fundamentally believe in from time to time, determine the type of society we live in. And so the book is about a battle between three sets of ideas based upon what's going on in America at the moment. And uh, the novel sort of plays out how these uh, ideas interact and, and fight for uh, primacy. Because in the end, one usually wins, and whatever one wins determines the type of society we end up living in. So it's kind of important. And, and it's interesting because in, in this uh sort of um, my limited understanding of string theory is that life exists on a frequency and not solely on electricity the way we might think of in some Frankensteinian way. Well, I, I hope you're not going to plumb m the depths of my physics knowledge because you're very, very soon get to the bottom. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm right down there with... I'm right. I'm right down there myself now. Um, no, yeah, no. I mean the the idea that physics is extraordinary because I mean what the physicists do. All it's like a Russian doll. Uh, every time they <laughs> open up one of the dolls, they find another one inside, and they keep burrowing away to see whether they can sort of get. I mean, what they're what they're after is this extraordinary thing called the theory of everything, which uh, I think is a little bit uh, arrogant, to be honest. But <laughs> what they want, <laughs> they want to keep going until they've, you know, found the last thing there. Now, you know, what they seem to think, or what some of them think, they don't all share this view, is that when energy was basically sort of concentrated and was the only thing that was sort of visible, you got tiny fluctuations within energy, and these fluctuations gave rise to these little filaments. And out of these things begun matter as we understand it, and depending on how this tiny filament uh, vibrated, uh, the type of matter, the way matter was arranged would evolve into a particular type of universe. So what they think is there may be many universes. Uh, I doubt whether we're going to come across. I mean, our universe seems to be difficult enough. So the thought that there may be others out there is really rather forbidding. But uh, it's an interesting idea. And I think it does resonate, uh, certainly in human society, because there's very little doubt that depending on how people collectively sort of see things, that determines the type of society they live in. And from time to time, uh, views seem to change radically. And I think we're at one of those points now where there are awful lot of ideas about what we should and shouldn't be doing, how we should live, how we should sort of deal with other people and so on and so forth. And in fact, there's a great deal of uncertainty. And during these times, uh, people become very open to, I'm afraid, demagogues and, and all sorts of other horrible things that uh, we're probably familiar with in history, but I think we're probably living through now. Because almost everywhere you look, and it's not just America, Americans shouldn't feel alone in this, I'm afraid, but wherever you look, 
the old system or the system we've brought, been brought up in, uh, democracy as we call it, liberal democracies, is under pressure and uh, seems to be failing on many fronts. And I think that is, is a big worry. And into that space, you tend to get people who um, will, uh, you know, beat the emotional drum and uh, give people false hope about the sort of identity they have. And the frustrations that people have, and they have a lot of frustrations, I think, uh, sex segments of the uh, population have not done well uh, since the war. Some have done very well, but an awful lot haven't done very well. And they are frustrated and they're looking for some sort of easy solution, any solution, frankly. And so you will get people who stand up and offer solutions and they will be followed, I'm afraid. But you talk about a convergence of um, science and religion and politics. Um, how do those things operate if not independently? Well, I think the first thing that we need to get straight in our minds is that science is a method. But I think very often we treat it almost as if it were a religion. You get certain scientists, I'm afraid, who say things which are not justified by science at all. Um, they talk about God, um, which is not their domain. They say that you can't prove God, and so God doesn't exist, which is very offensive to an awful lot of people who do believe in God, and so on and so forth. So science, I think, is a method, and a very good method, and a method that uh, we should use and we should pursue, because it does tell us how the natural world works. But that is quite different from morality. In other words, knowing how something works is not the same thing as knowing how we should use that thing. And that is where morality comes in, where religion comes in. Politics, I think, is, um, well, it's the way we all try and sort out our collective interests and, and steer a way forward. I mean, it's a, it's a messy business, always has been, probably always will be. But morality and science are two separate things and they need to be kept separate and they need to recognize each other's domain uh, respectfully i think uh, and unfortunately religion over the centuries tended to get locked in some extraordinary ideas about how the world started and so on and so forth because i mean there were no other ideas at the time so why not but as science gradually developed uh, and we started to work out how the world uh, evolved and uh, how people evolved and so on and so forth. Religion didn't adjust. It, it kept to its old story and looked increasingly redundant. And, and that, that was a pity because we lost the important bit about religion, which is the moral side of it. And, and we need that and we certainly don't want to let that go. So in the book, I'm, I suppose, talking about... Uh, an accommodation between the two, science on one side, religion on the other, both dealing with entirely different things. And that's pretty important to keep them separate. So I think they can, they should coexist. Uh, they are very complementary one with the other, uh, but they shouldn't obviously merge as they very often have in the past. And and I like your uh, your explanation of science as a method. 
And of course, we've all heard the phrase scientific method, and we have some understanding of what that means of, of testing hypotheses and so on. But we are so headline-driven that we think of science as the inferred conclusions of scientific testing. But if we don't if we don't accept and believe the conclusions, doesn't that give rise to the kind of science denial that we see presently? Yes, I mean, I think there's always a risk there, but the risk, I think, is, is one that scientists, especially in the media, because the media, the media has an awful lot to answer for, and, and you're obviously part of that, and, and I'm, you know, here playing the game with you. Uh, but we all have to be very careful. I mean, scientists tend not to overstate uh, what they um, what they come up with, but the media will latch on to something and blow it up and make it sound more more convincing, more certain than it is. Take, for example, where we are at the moment. I don't know how it's working in America, but here in the UK, uh, the COVID thing is, is fascinating. It's bringing out an awful lot of um, extraordinary sort of approaches, I think you have to say. But the one thing that comes up time and again is politicians appear in front of the media and they say we, we are being governed and guided by the science. Now that's a that's a terrible cop out. I mean, science can can tell us quite a lot about a pandemic, and and it can sort of indicate where it's going, how it's developing, how it may be counted, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, politicians actually have to stand up and be counted and make decisions. Uh, and yes, they listen to what the scientists have to say, but the scientists don't necessarily have the answers. They merely have a set of facts which very often evolve themselves as more is learned about, in this case, the pandemic. So I think, you know, to hide behind science uh, is a great mistake. Uh, and scientists themselves should not be encouraged to overstate what it is they discover. Uh, the relationships they find, and the media in particular, of course, is inclined to blow up anything to make something of it, to make it sound sort of interesting. Otherwise, people won't pay attention. So it, it is a sort of combination of things that's going on that's given science, I think, the wrong, the wrong message and allowed us to think that, oh, well, we'll leave it to science and everything will be okay. It won't. <laughs> science is simply a method will produce lots of very interesting facts, we hope. But at the end of the day, we, individuals, you, me, politicians, we have to decide how to use them. And we can't escape that responsibility. The responsibility is ours and ours alone, not science. Robert, um, I have to put a comma here and take a short break. Can you stand by for about four minutes and, and we'll come back and dig in some more? I'd be very happy to talk. No problem. All right, my guest is uh, Robert Mercer Narn, author of Multiverse. We're going to let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. And then we'll, uh, we'll talk some more about uh, multiverse and uh, science, religion, and politics when we return. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bai from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Sixties, the marches, the pins, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artist who made them famous. You're thrilled to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Ballet Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel, and who can ever forget this all-time classic... Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War, all for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jeff's airplane, Lothar and hand people, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, Gold and Protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Do it today. Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com.
This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to my conversation with author Robert Mercer Narn, who uh, has a dystopian political thriller called Multiverse. Robert, welcome back, and thank you so much for sticking around. Hi, Tom. No problem. Um, the book Multiverse, uh, the, the the story told and and uh, and what unfolds in the book. Um, how did that story come to you? Well, I guess simply watching. I'm, I'm just so that your listeners know. I'm half American, so I feel I, I have a, a, a foot in, in your camp, even though my accent <laughs> uh, belies that. So I've always been very, very interested in in American politics and what's going on uh, there, because very often what goes on in America. Uh, goes on elsewhere uh, you know you're a big powerful country and when you sneeze we're the ones who catch the cold as they say so i what i wanted what i felt was going on in america and, and not just america i think in europe as well there was the old post-war consensus about you know where we were where we were going and how we should get there was beginning to break down and that consensus i felt was based upon um, scientific management uh, applying science the notion of progress being sort of uh, you know something that would just go on and on and on and we had a, a very effective good capitalist system uh, there were markets, mar- markets functioned well, uh, people, you know, people obviously bought and sold and, 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 you know, life was supposed to be getting better and better. But one of the things that I think is becoming pretty obvious to an awful lot of people is that while life is getting better for some, it's certainly not getting better for everybody. And I mean, an interesting uh, fact, which I came across uh, a short while ago, is that over the last century, uh, consumption, human consumption, has increased twentyfold, uh, whereas the population has only quadrupled. So we are consuming a phenomenal amount of stuff, but poverty is still widespread. So an awful lot of people aren't benefiting, and some people are benefiting a very great deal. And I think that it's the people who aren't benefiting a, a very great deal who are feeling quite sore and feeling that the system that they're part of, which they're being told is scientific and progress is good and so on and so forth, they are the ones who are beginning to feel that, well, something isn't quite right here and they're searching for alternatives. So in the book, I have one group who are what I call the rationalists and they are the ones who sort of feel that what has gone on up till now seems to be working very well, except that it isn't. Uh, Then we have the nationalists who are playing on the discontent which is there lurking beneath the surface and they're, you know, they're America first. I think we all, uh, we all know who they are. <laughs> and uh, <you> know, <laughs> we, we won't elaborate unless you want me to. And then finally, I have a party called the Moralists and the Moralists are sort of struggling to get their voice heard. But what their, their argument is that we really need to sort of recalibrate uh, our approach to life, and uh, I suggest that the churches should play a much greater role than they do 
in, in basically holding up a mirror to our sort of everyday life. And so the responsibility is ours, ultimately. I mean, we are the ones who do stuff. We are the ones who buy stuff. We are the ones who vote these, these people in and out. So it, it really is down to us. And so I wanted to, in the book, sort of play these three strands of ideas and, and see where it led. And, uh, well, I won't tell you what the outcome is, but, you know, I feel the outcome is unfolding in front of us right now. Well, and, and I, I, isn't it kind of risky to um, set this in the year 2024? Um, well, I... That's coming I up pretty quickly, Robert. <laughs> I, I, I think I could have set it in 2020, to be honest. <laughs> I was toy. I thought 2024 might be too late. I might have missed the boat by then. <laughs> no, I mean, I really, I really think it's happening right now. I mean, wherever you look, um, it's quite extraordinary what's going on. I mean, we in Britain, we've had a... Uh, you know, an election and we voted to leave Europe, which um, an awful lot of people, you know, didn't actually go along with. But the lies that were told during that game were, were truly colossal. But what it did do, the campaign, is it played to people's concerns and frustrations. And, of course, politicians have done this for time immemorial. Uh, you know, that is what very often politi politicians do. They play to our emotions. And I think what we need now is, is good leadership, you know, people who actually can see beyond the emotions and, and uh, people like Franklin and Delano Roosevelt. We, we need one of those right now to sort of steer us forward. And I, I can't actually see one on the horizon, unfortunately. <laughs> I've, I've made that same case many times um, that, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see any Churchills out there either. Um, and Churchill, I mean, that's a good point, because Churchill had a very, very checkered uh, political career up until the time that uh, the war, uh, the Second World War, developed. And then his particular character was absolutely ideal. You know, it was the sort of thing we needed. But funnily enough, when the war was over, the British people, um, they let him go. Um, they, you know, they, they felt they needed a new type of leader and the leader that they got was one who was rather more on 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 the left of politics and people wanted more social welfare they wanted a national health service and so on and so forth they were you know sick to death of the war obviously the country was impoverished but in spite of that the government did manage to put in a lot of the the new government put in a lot of these sort of social programs, and, and, and that was a very good thing. So, you know, at the end of the day, we, the people, must make choices, and uh, we must be careful what type of leader we pick. We need leaders who are suitable for the moment. I mean, cometh the hour, cometh the leader is very true, and unfortunately at the moment, I don't see too many leaders out there who are, who, who are appropriate for the hour that we're in. I I used to say that I was kind of bored with the duality of things, you know, up, down, right, wrong, black, white, night, day, that sort of thing. But but there is something very familiar about this triad, the moralists and the rationalists and, and the nationalists. And I think you're right about us seeing that playing out now. Um, the nationalists, as you said, we, we kind of know who they are. Um, 
but the uh, the rationalists seem to me to be sort of the moderates, and the moralists, of course, the evangelicals. Um, we have that, that is that is quite true, and I and I was I was I was I wasn't sure at all how to deal with that uh, in the book, and the moralist. The, the, the preacher in in the book Multiverse uh, is probably not an extreme e- evangelist, but but what he is, and I think this is quite important, especially if you come from the Christian tradition, which you know most people in America do. But it, even if you don't, most of the other religions actually have the same sort of strand. But the Christian tradition was founded obviously by a man who disliked the the rules and regulations of the religion that he was brought up in uh the priests that he encountered were the ones who said well follow the rules and and you know you'll be all right whereas he said no it's actually a bit more complicated than that you have to be a decent human being you have to have empathy for those around you you have to uh, have compassion now those are th- those are important things. Now not all of the religious leaders, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, peddle that particular line, but that is at heart certainly the Christian line, and it's one we probably don't want to forget. I I, I don't want to give out any spoiler alerts uh, about the book, but um, but I do want to get into these uh, these these different camps. Um, a little bit uh, in the book you talk about a failing U.S. government and a collapsed economy um, well let, let me just elaborate on that because that's a good point point. and if you if you go back to say the 19 I don't know 1970s when the economy in America was a little bit stuck and people started to feel that if you deregulated and loosened things up, uh, you know, we, we'd get going again. And in fact, that did pretty much work. So regulations were, were peeled back. Uh, the capitalist system was allowed to sort of, um, you know, go its way and, and do what it does, does very well. Um, and that did work. And the globalization, which uh, sort of fell out of that. In other words, companies simply said, we will go with our plant wherever we can get the cheapest labor. Okay, fair enough. But what that left behind were cities like Detroit, uh, where my family uh, worked for a long, long time (laughs) back in its heyday. Suddenly those cities were stranded and large numbers of people were were sort of left uh, without a decent job, their homes, they lost that. You've got all sorts of racial problems because when you have poverty and hardship, that just stirs everything up. So the rationalists, the people who felt that, you know, the economic system that we had was the best and should be allowed just to sort of work its way on and everything would be, you know, would come out okay in the day, they ignored the damage that was being done. So I think we missed a trick there. I think we should have been much more aware of the downside 
of what we were doing, um, and we should have been paying attention to retraining, uh, helping people to get back on their feet. I mean, if we were going to send companies to China and Hong Kong and Singapore and places like that, you know, you had to do something about the people left behind, and we didn't do that. We certainly didn't do it well enough, and I think that was a great mistake, and uh, that is, I wanted to play that into the book. Um, because I think those are the people, the people who've been left behind, they are the ones who are searching, reaching for what the nationalists or the extremists or whatever you want to call them are offering. I mean, they are fodder for them because they are pretty frustrated and, and they want something different. And, you know, expressions like tear it down, build a wall, drain the swamp, that feels pretty good to a lot of people. It, it, you know, they think, well, great, well, we want to kick somebody. We want to kick somebody. And, uh, and unfortunately, there are politicians out there who will play to that and play to it very successfully. You reminded me when you mentioned Detroit of uh, just how small a world it is, Robert, because uh, my show is based in Flint, right up the road from Detroit. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's about 70 miles away. Um, you know it well, then. I, I do indeed. I do indeed. But um, but one of the things that, that we haven't really touched on, and that's um, this notion that um, President Dukes in, in the book, who is uh, one of the moralists, believes that U.S. citizens have strayed too far from God. But let's talk about the breakdown of the religious organizations themselves, because you characterized Americans as mostly of the Christian faith, but from a lot of different uh, groups and disciplines. Um, and, and a lot of people have walked away from the church, and the various churches have redefined themselves in some pretty interesting ways. Yeah, no, I mean, th this is a real, real problem. It's a problem, uh, it, it's a difficult thing to discuss, it's a difficult thing to get one's head around, and obviously it goes back to the time when the Catholic Church, which for a thousand years, from the collapse of the Roman Empire in Europe, in around about 450 AD, for a thousand years, the Catholic Church was the moral core that kept secular interests under some sort of control. Otherwise, it would have been a, a most foul place. Um, but the church did a pretty good job. Now, the church did not like any variation. So any group that tried to sort of approach the idea of religion differently, uh, that got into serious trouble. And then the church was pretty brutal, rather like the Communist Party. In China, for example, they, they don't want anything that isn't the Communist Party in China. And uh, the Catholic Church operated in much the same way. And then you got, uh, obviously, the, the Reformation, uh, because the Catholic Church, like all institutions, all human institutions, did become rather corrupt, um, probably very corrupt in places, and was rather hypocritical here and there. And unfortunately, you know, people began to sort of resist that and didn't like it, didn't like its political control. So the Reformation allowed people to approach religion from a different perspective. And you got this sort of fracturing of religion into just exactly what you said, many different approaches. 
And they then became very keen on their own identity. And so you started getting battles between branches of the Protestant church. Um, and today the evangelical movement, which is the most successful part of the relig religious body, I mean, they, they have they increase their membership uh, almost every year, the evangelicals, because people want to be part of something. They want to be part of something that seems to be going somewhere, that gives them hope, makes them feel wanted, and so on and so forth. And, would, and some would say th that, they, that they crave power, and, and they have their own political designation in this country, the religious right. Well, they do. They, they absolutely do. And, and religion has always had a very, very tricky relationship with power. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think power itself is, is one of those things that, you know, you can't, you can't do without it and you sort of wish you could, but you can't. And so, yes, there is no doubt about that. Um, and I don't think we can escape that. But what we can do, I think, is uh, require our religious organizations to be more involved in the world as it actually is. For example, you know, there are enormous debates going on about uh, genetics and the genetic engineering, which is now becoming a real possibility. Now, the Catholic Church obviously had a view about things like that, and which it would consider, and eventually some sort of rule would come down on high and people would either accept it or not. Uh, but in, in, the, in America, you get uh, vicious battles between groups, uh, the, you know, people who don't like abortion, people who don't like any interference with the sort of natural order of things. But these are legitimate debates and they need to be had, and they need to be had out in the open. Um, and I think you know, the hope has to be that the Constitution and the law merely says, well, you as a group, yes, these are your views, and it's important that you have these views, you know, they're held honestly, but they're not everybody's views. So forcing views down other people's throats is, is not a very attractive thing, and certainly the law should not permit it. So pluralism in religion probably is not a bad thing, but it does mean that we have, we break down into combative groups, and that is not very attractive. I mean, that, if you're a Christian, that isn't Christianity, end of, you know, simple as that, it's not. Right, right. And yet for years, we had uh, scientists denying the existence of God and Catholics de denying the validity of science. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it was a, a complete standoff. <laughs> I, think, I think the thing is, get off my lawn. And yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, Robert, um, how is this book different than your earlier writing? Well, the, the first book that I wrote, uh, I was actually in Seattle uh, living at the time, and uh, the, the first book was about, if you remember something called the dot-com bubble, uh, when everybody got very excited about all the new dot-com companies, and uh, so the, the book is about a bunch of people in Seattle, good ordinary people, who get terribly carried away. There's a, there's a 
one of these sort of, uh, you know, uh, tipster letters that comes around suggesting you buy this, buy that. And they all get terribly carried away. And uh, needless to say, an awful lot of them come a cropper. And so, the, you know, the book is a sort of social commentary about how we all sort of behave and uh, get carried away by the mood of the moment. Um, and so I've always been really interested in, in just how we, we the people, behave and how we sort of fall prey to all these various sort of movements this way and that. And so multiverse, in a way, is an extension of that. It's, it's more overtly political, um, but it's a very much a continuation of the sort of social books that I like to write and the sort of things I'm very interested in, to be honest. Unlike uh, the, the people who study physics that we talked about earlier that basically want to get to, um, you know, the theory of everything... Um, is, is there a common ground for all of these elements that should be held up as a goal or a destination? No, I don't think there is, because the, the conclusion I've come to looking at the world, both from physics and from religion and, and, and all points in between, is that the, the universe that we live in is essentially a creative thing. And so outcomes are not predictable. Um, we can have an idea about where things might go, but they are not predictable in, in the sort of mechanical sense of the word. So we are actually part of the process that's going on within our universe. And what we do to some extent will determine outcomes. So we might as well actually try and create something that is pleasant. We might as well create something that is agreeable, you know, which is really what morality is about. Morality is about balancing, you know, our personal needs and desires and so on and so forth with our, with our sort of collective responsibilities and coming up with a halfway decent way of living. Uh, and that really is the name of the game. And the creative side is that things are always changing around us the environment is changing uh, our technologies are changing and we have to adjust to these things all the time where pressure is put on us to actually make moral decisions about what we do and how we get there but the point is we should do it with a degree of optimism we should try and set ourselves the goal of making it better uh, not better just for us individually why not? That's good. But, you know, better for all of us. So we need to think like that more than we do. We, we, we tend to feel that everything is just sort of happening, that progress is sort of thing out there and we just have to go along with it. We don't. We, are, we have the ability to actually make things better for ourselves, for all of ourselves, and we should do it. Uh, you know, we should, we should not lose our self-confidence, which I think we very often do. And at times like the present, when everything seems desperately uncertain, we think, oh, heavens, you know, what are we to do? Uh, well, you know, start small, start, you know, at home, and start doing things right. Robert, I have to put another comma here. Can you stick around so we can talk a little bit more? This conversation is delightful. I've, I've been going on too long. You put in some, some important selling. 
author of uh, Multiverse, Robert Mercer Narn, and I will return after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. 
Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman steady sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you. Could you be happy if your name were... This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we continue my conversation with uh, author Robert Mercer Narn. His his book, Multiverse, is uh, a dystopian political thriller searching for a balance of science and religion's role in politics and the fight for power. Robert, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Hi, Tom. Yeah, no problem. I love your advertisements, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. Um, just before the break, you startled me a little when you uh, pointed out how unpredictable things are because I was going to uh, come back from break and talk about making some predictions. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> no, but... Well, well, what, we, know, we know that all be wrong, so far what, away... <laughs> Well, the problem is you set the book in 2024, so, you know, unfortunately we would have to face our predictions. But um, <laughs> the, the, the thing is, we've been talking about the similarities between the world in your book, in Multiverse, and the way things are going right now, and how influenced one is by the other, and so on. Um, the question is... Is there a moral to the story? Is there a lesson to be learned, a course we can take that that changes what seems to be a certain dystopian future? I I think there is. Uh, well, let me digress a little bit. I, I just come came back from Crete, the island of Crete, it's a Greek island, where I spent a couple of weeks uh, with my family. Now, while there, I came across a monument to those killed when the Nazis occupied the island. Uh, The Cretans are ferociously independent people, and it's a very, very mountainous island. And so the Germans, frankly, didn't stand much of a chance to the hit and run, which the Cretan men were um, (laughs) carrying out, making life pretty difficult for the Germans. So what the Germans did was simply round up all the men, old men, women and children and shot them. And so there is a, a wonderful monument to all these people who were who were killed by the Nazis, and uh, it's it's the monument is a is a, a human body clearly dead being held by a sort of angel. It's very big. It's overlooking. It's on a on a hill overlooking towards the ocean. It's really very lovely. And then there are various um, figures in silhouette, so flats about uh, fifteen of them. And on each of these figures are the names of all the people who were killed during this ghastly period. And next to these is a, is a little um, stone slab, and on it are these words written by a Cretan, a man called Vasily Rotas, who was, a, I think he was an academic, um, and he was a, a poet. Uh, and uh, this, is what he, this is what he wrote. Passerby, stay guarded, here lie dead who never betrayed, 
who never lied, tyrants they never worshipped. Passerby stay guarded, and with a lucid spirit study them. If you enjoy the light, if you walk full of courage, if you love and are loved, remember, whatever good you have in life was offered to you by those who died. Now, those are very moving words, and I think what they should tell us all is that we can't pass the buck. Individually, we cannot pass the buck. The buck stops with us. So we mustn't look to great leaders to solve all our problems. We must solve the problems ourselves. And that means, you know, we have to find candidates who we think are honest, who we think are sensible, and who we think are going to sort of uh, do what we want them to do. And in our own personal lives, we need to, you know, conduct ourselves well. And that, of course, is what morality, what the churches should be concerned with, giving us a little bit of support, uh, you know, each week so that we can, you know, steer a, a good course and, 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 and hang in there and, and more or less try and do the right thing. Because unless we do, the politicians that we elect are going to go on being a complete disaster. I don't know whether you've come across, is it Stuart Stevens? He's, uh, he's just written a book. It was all a lie, I think it's called. He was a leading Republican operative, and he got a lot of people elected. I think he worked for George W. Bush, Mitt Romney, Bob Dole, people like that. So he's a real high flyer. And he is now looking at his party, the Republican Party, and he's in despair. And... He feels, well, the, the way he put it was this. He said that, what is Germany? Talking about Germany during the period of Hitler. What is Germany but a story of people who faced a moral moment and failed? And he believes that the Republicans behind Trump have given up on true conservatism, he is a conservative, in return for power. Now, you know, this is a, a terrible, terrible moral collapse. So we're seeing a collapse at the top and we're seeing a collapse further down because people, you know, people like you and me, voters, whatever, we just aren't necessarily, uh, you know, doing the right thing. We're, we're following, you know, we all get a real kick out of what Trump says. I mean, we, we love it over here, I tell you. Every time we get a tweet, we're all glued to our TV and thinking, what the hell is he going to say next? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. But let me bring this, this conversation full circle a little bit, because we started at the yeah. very beginning, Robert, talking about string theory. And string theory plays a role in, in multiverse. In fact, that is how multiverse is, is defined. Um, but you suggest that... that straying from morality influences the way the string vibrates and throws things you know out of out of kilter and what i'm wondering is is that collectively as one string or do we all have our own little string i think we probably have our own little string but our string we're a bit we're more like an orchestra than we are just a, a, a sole player i think and what tends to happen uh, from time to time is that the prevailing rhythm 
um, starts to change and we we search for a rhythm we can identify with that we feel comfortable with now, it might be nationalism it might be science it might be morality church uh, and there's a tussle a tussle goes on until one of these things starts to predominate one of these things has to win out and then we then move forward more or less together with the same sort of tune, the same sort of moral tone. So, you know, I think it is a collective thing. It's not just an individual thing. I mean, you know, we are social animals. We can't function without each other. And so at the end of the day, we all have to find a way of getting on and we have to find a sort of a moral center that we all feel comfortable with. And at the moment, I think a lot of things are up in the air and were the cards full? I do not know. And I don't suppose you do either. <laughs> I <laughs> don't. Do. I, I don't. And, and I do hope that our conversation has been one that gives people things, uh, that provides people with things to think about and not so much telling them what to think. Um, Multiverse is the name of the book. Uh, we're getting close to the end here, Robert, and before we run out of time, I want to try and squeeze in a couple of things very quickly. Um, one is, uh, and, and again, this is uh, looking forward a little bit, um, but what's next for you? And, um, and, and do you have a, a website where people can find out more about what we've been talking about and about your, uh, your other writing? Uh, there is a website. Uh, it goes by the very unusual name of Gritpool, G-R-I-T-P-O-U-L dot com. <laughs> um, uh, the Gritpool just happens to be uh, a symbol which is associated with my family here in Scotland. I think it actually means big chicken, Gritpool. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I always like to think that perhaps it's an eagle, really. But anyway, they can find, they can go to, to, to the website and they can, they can find out a little bit about me in the books and so on and so forth. So it's Gritpool, G-R-I-T-P-O-U-L dot com. <laughs> well, Robert, uh, do you have another book in the works? I do, but it's not one I'm in a hurry. I, I'm, I'm wrestling, I'm wrestling with, I'd like to leave something behind that, um, you know, helps us move forward in the right direction. Uh, <laughs> multiverse is a, is a jog, is a little jog, uh, but I'd like to do, uh, you know, something a little bit more substantial. But I probably won't get there. <laughs> well, this is a tough time to be, uh, uh, to be having a book drop, and uh, I wish you all the best of luck with it, and thank you so much for spending this hour with me, Robert. It's been a... Well, well I really appreciate the opportunity, and, uh, and thank you very much for having me on the show. I've enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was um, Lord Robert Mercer Narn, or Dr. Robert Mercer Narn. is the author of Multiverse, a dystopian political thriller that searches for a balance of science and religion's role in the fight for power. Um, pretty, uh, pretty interesting stuff. Coming up in the next hour, or the third half of our three-hour tour, as I like to call it, we're going to talk, uh, well, we're going to have some old-time radio. We're going to have uh, some comedy from uh, Andy Griffith. And uh, we're going to talk about urban gardening with um, Jeff Herman from Urban Guard, uh, from uh, Lawn Starter. They did a recent study on uh, urban gardening and picked out 
America's best 12 cities for urban gardening. We'll talk about that and uh, much, much more. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 